the other day when I was on the plane, there was this woman eating a muffin in a way that looked to me like what I do when I write an essay in which I'm describing a poem I'm very much in love with. She was articulating her pleasure in the muffin by massaging bits of it, taking the crumbs out and playing with them. And she was using the, her way of eating the muffin to describe her pleasure in the muffin. And I think, yeah, that was one sort of one way in which uh, someone was being a literary critic outside the appropriate zone. Oftentimes what the humanities in general and literature in specific are taken to provide is a kind of empathy model. Like reading novels will teach you how to empathize with your patients. And like, holy shit, if you have ever been in a faculty meeting <laughs> in an English department, you will know that reading novels does not make you better at having conversations or resolving conflicts. I suppose I should admit from the outset that of course, that a critic should know everything is a regulative ideal and ambition, which inevitably, for all of us, yeah. even the best critics that there are, ends in failure in that Sisyphusian way. The tragedy of having that level of curiosity about the world, of course, is that you are insatiable and therefore you are not satisfied. You do not accomplish that thing. This ideal of the critic is worth having nonetheless in the following sense. It demarcates a kind of critic from one we're used to thinking about as a specialist. It's a sort of emphasis, and again, I, I will grant, I will admit, this is a great question-begging emphasis on generality, on totality, rather than on specialization. And of course, there's an absolute limit of what any one person can know, but also the much more sort of quotidian limits on the possibility of doing that when you are facing a deadline. The art here is a kind of performance where the, the critic is attempting to do something that they will inevitably fail in doing given the strictures around which that is produced. But what you're watching for is the beautiful tightrope walker who will execute as many death-defying feats of interpretive and hermeneutic somersaults and then inevitably falls to the mat. There's a sort of underlying humanity in that. Your department has been fretting about ChatGPT and the way it's exposing the vulnerabilities of our assumption of what knowledge is. So we can spend our time mourning the loss of something or we could go back and say, okay, how is it opening up another way for us to think about our work and how we produce knowledge. I think generally it's just been open to shifts that are happening and to see them more as possibilities for a new kind of practice as opposed to seeing them through an apocalyptic lens. We think we're always in decline and we never quite know how to think about being in decline and so each new epoch mm -hmm. of crisis is experienced yeah. as another stage of the frog in the boiling water. Mm -hmm. And if there's a polemical mm -hmm. force to what I'm trying to do, it's to try to intercept being pessimistic about what we can't actually change mm -hmm. versus being pessimistic about what we could actually change. Yeah. And the we there is weaving very quickly and probably with too many elisions between people who do what we do and the media mm -hmm and then a mainstream discourse about national decline, into which we would nest the decline of higher ed, right. into which we would then nest the decline of the humanities, into which we would then nest the decline of something like literary criticism. Mm -hmm.
American Vandal makes sense to me too, since the origin point or the anchor point in Twain and Twain studies, Twain is like one of the great transitional figures between the two empires, yeah. occupying those decades and taking into view so much about the architectonic smashing and grinding of gears among the world powers mm -hmm. in ways that a strictly American studies approach to Twain doesn't always reveal, but a global approach to Twain certainly does. Yeah. Welcome to the American Vandal from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. In the spring of 1888, a Boston publishing house brought forth a book of Matthew Arnold's first and last impressions of America, as he put it. The volume collected a series of interrelated reviews and essays which Arnold had originally published in the British periodical, The 19th Century, the last of which bore the title, Civilization in the United States. Within a week of its publication, two things happened. First, a copy made its way to Hartford and into the hands of the American author who Arnold most disparaged, Mark Twain. And then, a few days later, in Liverpool, Arnold died. Death did not spare him Twain's wrath. For many months, and to a lesser degree for the next two decades, in both private correspondence and public comment, Twain attacked Arnold's book. Allusions to it found their way into a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, completed in the summer of 1888. Twain began preparing an official rebuttal for publication in the Centurion magazine, but never completed it. He even briefly planned a book-length response under the title, English Criticism in America, alluding not only to Arnold's reputation as critic par excellence, but to the panacea Arnold proposes near the end of civilization in the United States. What Arnold thought would civilize the United States was criticism. Americans' ceaseless patriotic boasting, their anti-intellectualism, their lack of religious orthodoxy, their appetite for sentiment and sensation, their addiction to burlesque humor, all of it, Arnold hypothesized, could be solved by a steady diet of what he called cool and sane criticism. Criticism of the English style made for better newspapers, he said, which improved the public taste and a more refined public would humble and reform American artists, politicians, and theologians, who thereafter would produce a better brand of culture, further educating the populace, elevating their tastes, refining their periodicals, on and on in a virtuous cycle. Twain took issue with many aspects of Arnold's book, too many to catalog here, but foremost Arnold's presumption that Americans needed his advice. Arnold himself had observed that for the great bulk of humanity, it was already far better to be an American than an Englishman. The wages were higher. Americans had better access to fresh food, housing, and durable goods, as well as literacy, public transportation, and social welfare. There was real upward mobility. Arnold covers all of this in his essays, and yet denies the United States the status of European civilization. 
In Arnold's words, For that immense class of people whose income is less than $400 annually, things in America are favorable. Society seems organized for their benefit. To begin with, the humbler kind of work is better paid in America. Even luxuries of a certain kind are within a laboring man's easy reach. But I believe neither that happiness consists, merely or mainly, in being plentifully supplied with the comforts and conveniences of life, nor that civilization consists in being so supplied. Such a conclusion, Twain said, was the product of what he called an imperial brain, which blinded Arnold to any conception of civilization except one that restricted it to class the top class, as in tropical countries, snow is restricted to the mountain summits. Twain told an audience in Boston, if the measure of civilization was not the reduction of slavery, despotism, ignorance, superstition, poverty, inequality, and police brutality, as far as he was concerned, Arnold and the English could keep it. But his most viral response to Arnold came via a letter to the president of Yale, who had recently offered Twain an honorary degree. His reply just happened to find its way, as many of Twain's letters did, into the Hartford Current, and after that it was reprinted in newspapers around the country. In the letter, Twain, ironically, thanked Yale for sparing him the need to defend himself against the late Matthew Arnold's sharp rebuke, then proceeded to do exactly that. As he put it, reminding the world that ours is a useful trade, a worthy calling, that with all its lightness and frivolity, Arnold's words being thrown back at him, it has one serious purpose, one aim, one specialty, and it is constant to it, the deriding of shams, the exposure of pretentious falsities, the laughing of stupid superstitions out of existence, and that whoso is by instinct engaged in this sort of warfare is the natural enemy of royalties, nobilities, privileges, and all kindred swindles, and the natural friend of human rights and human liberties. Across his responses to civilization in the United States, Twain argued that not only was British criticism incapable of taming the American demos, American popular literature would revolutionize the British Empire. In fact, that process had already begun. Matthew Arnold was just too densely English to see what was happening all around him. In one of my favorite expressions of patriotism, Twain wrote, better the almighty dollar than a tub of rancid guts labeled king. Twain's feud with Arnold interpolates two durable rivalries in professional literary studies, the American versus the British tradition and the critic versus the creative writer. Twain and Arnold each make ostentatious claims which mix mythic narratives of national supremacy with bold estimations of the power which resides in their professions. Arnold believes literary critics have the capacity to temper the collective hubris of a rising world power, to quell its citizens' feelings of superiority and the violent ambitions which follow from them. And Twain asserts, as he would continue to for the remainder of his life, that popular literature can topple empires, is an antidote to entrenched power of all kinds, a countervailing force which properly directed is a brace against tyranny in government and of capital.
We have come to the end of Criticism Limited. Over the next three weekdays, you will find three episodes in your feed, which together comprise our finale. In them, you will find some familiar voices, scholars you've met along the way. But they are buttressed by five new conversations, interviews I have done in recent weeks, which pick up the threads we have followed throughout the series, but also juxtapose three questions inspired by the Twain-Arnold feud. First, is the relationship between the critic and the creative writer necessarily an antagonistic one? Can criticism help a waning American empire unlearn national supremacy by historicizing the model of Britain, as Jed Esty suggests in The Future of Decline? And finally, how do we reconcile the audacity and the futility of criticism, its aspirations to shape nations following Arnold, and its humble inability to sustain agreement about even a single poem as Ryan Ruby narrates in the clip you heard during the intro to this episode, the critic aspires to know everything, but every critical act is inherently incomplete, inadequate, doomed to failure. While I have sought to organize these conversations in a way that maximizes the resonances between them, I want to emphasize that I regard all three episodes which I have given the title The Empire of Criticism as of a single piece, you will eventually be able to find a bibliography for the entire trilogy at marktwainstudies.com backslash empire of criticism. Our journey begins with Becky Carver, a lecturer in 20th and 21st century literature at University of Exeter and the author of Granular Modernism. She recently presented at the Modernist Studies Association Conference in Brooklyn on the topic of bed glee, which to several people in attendance felt like a direct response to some of the questions about the practicality of criticism, which have been raised throughout this series. I'm writing a book at the moment about pleasure, and writing with an emphasis on literary criticism in particular, and academic literary criticism and the role of pleasure in it. And I'm trying to not quite make the case for pursuing pleasure in literary criticism because I don't think you can defend it. And nor would I want to, that would flatten it. But rather insist on the right to pursue pleasure for, for perversity's sake to an extent and for whimsy's sake and also to enjoy its indefensibility. So the argument of the paper was ultimately about the role of glee in literary criticism and our rights to glee. And where bad glee came in was that I was working primarily on Roland Barthes and thinking about sex in late Barthes. Uh, and so the relationship between literary criticism and the erotic and the way that glee came in was you know, partly because it's paired, it's in the same bed as badly in that word, partly because I felt that what I enjoyed most about Barthes and what I felt was most useful in that book and which I most wanted to apply in my own work was his glee 
I wanted to borrow it and I wanted to have it as my own. But also I was interested in the fact that it was uninhabitable too. There was something gorgeously other about it. And part of the embodiedness of, of late births has to do with a kind of distance, which is intimate at the same time. I was inter- interested in the sexiness of Bartesian glee. Mm-hmm. I, I felt that I had a right to want it for myself and that I, they had a right to want it for literary criticism. And I think the paragraph that interested people, which related that idea back to Guillory, had to do with a phrase which, like having listened to a few of the podcasts, I feel a bit mischievous for magpieing. There's lots more going on in that book than that phrase. But I especially hated this phrase. And when it came up, I got angry in the margin of the book. The phrase was... Overestimation of aim. Guillory was accusing literary critics of an overestimation of aim. Without being especially ambitious on literary criticism's behalf, I don't think it can change the world. I do believe that we should overestimate ourselves. I think we have a right to overestimate ourselves. A discourse of pleasure can't help but overestimate itself. It's a it's what keeps a discourse of pleasure going. You overestimate your ability to describe to the person you're in love with, how exactly you love them and what it is about them that you like. And I was interested in examples then of writers like Eric Griffiths or Colin Butts who are in a kind of fever to, to explain to you why it is that they like something. We, and Elliot does it too. I can think of lots of, of current examples in scholarship where writers are excited to tell you what it is that they like about a particular word in a poem or a particular rhyme, a particular bit of phrasing, and they can't quite get it ad- across, but what you see is their glee. And I think that kind of moment of being thwarted combined with the overestimation of aim, combined with the ambition to get across exactly what's most pleasurable, what was most exciting. So I suppose I like the idea of a literary criticism that keeps finding itself thwarted by limitations that are fundamental to the discourse, but isn't put off by being thwarted. Your fixation on that phrase, the overestimation of aim, Mm -hmm. I think is shared by Chris Newfield. And Mm -hmm. er earlier in the season, one of the things that he said he wished most for literary studies as a discipline was an increase of confidence, right? That the one thing he would like to borrow from the social sciences and particularly from economics is their Mm -hmm. confidence in making their claims. I think there needs to be self-ironizing confidence, (laughs) a kind of confidence with humility built into it. It would be absurd to be unconscious of the limitations of what we do but at the same time it's necessary to over aspire yeah I suppose at the moment the solutions that are all coming into my head are from Roland Barthes and I'm thinking about a moment in his fake autobiography when he says that when he's writing he's most stupid he embraces stupidity in his writing and coiled within that stupidity is a tendency to say things that he doesn't altogether believe but that he's trying out out of a kind of perversity so my answer is yeah that it's a paradox that the confidence has to be one that keeps unraveling which is performance when I give him the paper someone came over to me and they said just as you were saying these things I couldn't tell whether you believed any of them and I said that's function of the paper to have a kind of tone which makes everything slippery Mm -hmm. I, i can't help but note that that interpretation of confidence is so appealing to me as a 19th century americanist and in fact 
part of my dissertation is about the word confidence mm-hmm. and the way in which it changes in 19th century America, specifically because of the emergence of the con man and the idea of a confidence which is slippery and that in Mm. fact confidence is always slippery that the revelation of the invention of the con man is that there is no such thing as a confidence which is really earned (laughs) but rather it is always something that is aspirational and fragile poses problems for this word professional which has kept coming up in the podcasts and Mm -hmm. i have big problems with the word professional because the appeal of literary criticism from my perspective, its major appeal is that everyone can do it as as a basic level. It's something we start to do when we first learn to speak and we first learn to listen to stories. It's that vocabulary of excitement that you learn in reacting to the sounds of particular words put together. And when you hear a word for the first time, so when we're good close readers, we regress really to that first moment when we first hear a word and we think about it and it surprises again. So I think there's something about literary criticism which is infantile and so it can never seem fully professional and it's immune to that. And if you professionalise it altogether, you take the fun out of it. The thrill that students get when they feel that they can pass something using skills that they feel that they're not allowed to use in other contexts. The the part of the subject that comes easy, I think, uh, is one that needs to be preserved. Rightful confidence without ambivalence is something that, that I associate with professionalism and therefore with a kind of artificial state for what we do, really. What distinguishes Lee from other forms of exuberance, other forms of joy? Like what is intrinsic to Lee that makes you like that word for the pleasure of criticism better than maybe others? What I adore about it is that it's irrepressible. It's this kind of burble out of the body that is almost that you almost are embarrassed by, that you let out. Which is unprofessional, right? Like that there is something, yeah, 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 something, an uncontrolled, spontaneous response is in some ways the antithesis of what we think of as professionalism. Absolutely. And by its nature, it's unpolished. So there's a kind of the element of the infantile. Often it's accompanied by a joke, often by a bad joke. It's an example of glee. I was connecting with Nietzsche's bad jokes where he makes these stupid jokes and you can see him bent over laughing and your amusement derives from the fact that he's amused at himself. Your amusement is a response to his glee, a kind of not altogether a humouring of his glee, but a sort of genuine hearty delight in his glee. But the other attraction of glee for me is that there's an opacity to it. I can't enter someone else's glee. It's their own. I need to find my own ways of being gleeful. So at the same time that it's vivid to me that someone is excited and bowled over by their excitement. And often, you know, it's an excitement to do with a triumph of some kind. When Griffiths thinks that he said something very clever, you can hear glee in his tone. When you see that, despite being vivid to you, it's not yours. There's a sense in which the text is at once remote from you and intimately present. Well, so this really hits at a, I think, internal contradiction to the series that I am myself grappling with, which 
one and the same time, there has been an emphasis upon this idea of de-skilling, as Annie defined it, that in the process of defunding professional literary studies, mm -hmm. we are also undermining the kinds of knowledge that are created by critics when they have the time, the space, the resources to do in-depth research, to produce layers of criticism that range from the academic monograph mm -hmm. to the para-academic essay, but then all the way down, as we have discussed in this series, and maybe down is a word I don't even necessarily want to use, but to the book talk and the book tube and the various forms of popular criticism that is, as you said, often done by students, by, by people who do not think of themselves as literary critics. In fact, mm -hmm. I've had several people who host book podcasts reach out to me and say, I didn't realize I was a critic until I was listening to this series, <laughs> because yeah, yeah. there is this idea of the critic that remains in the kind of Arnoldian sense uh, as somebody kind of elite erudite, right, beyond the population. And yeah. I wonder, how do you see both the preservation of the possibility for a kind of very refined and aspirational criticism that has the time and the space, the time and space that Roland Barthes had, right, the time and yeah. space that many of the professional critics of the 20th century had, with also the acknowledgement that it is really important that young people, students, everybody who enjoys text, whether literary or otherwise, feels emboldened to participate in the art of interpretation. One answer to the question is that it seems to me that according to the account that you've just given, those two things are polarized. Elite criticism on one hand and mm -hmm. what I've been describing as a kind of easy response on the other. And actually, in the best criticism, they're reconciled, they come together. So as prep for this, I've just been rereading some types of ambiguity, right? the mm -hmm. beginning of it, which came up with when he was an undergraduate. Yeah. And it's the best work of criticism we have. And he came up with it when he'd been kicked out <laughs> of Cambridge when they found condoms in his room. And he said he was confused about his future, so he decided that he would turn this essay that he'd written about a Shakespeare sonnet into a book. And it kept growing and growing. Yeah, so I suppose I don't see them as belonging to polarised states, but rather as being connected. And that's the exciting thing about literacy. At one end, it's learning what a word means on the basis of its inner excitements. And at the other end, it's, you know, Roland Barthes or it's or William Anson or it's Eric Griffith. Someone, as I think Richard said it about Anson, that he was pulling rabbits out of a hat and he would keep going for the length of the book. And Richard wanted him to keep doing it. You start doing that when you're a kid and you're listening to Edward Lear or something. And at the other extreme, is you're doing as a, as a critic, pulling loads and loads more rabbits out of the hat. And it never ceases to be entertaining. No, and potentially, like, when combined with appropriate levels of research, it, it can produce the best scholarship, can't it? I think mm. one of the problems, the ongoing problems that we have in our subject is that we're slightly embarrassed about the side of literary criticism, mm. which is literary appreciation. 
And what we need to do is find a dialogue between literary appreciation and literary analysis. Rather than saying that those two things are divorced, we need to admit, really, that they work very well together. Does Glee name that nexus? Because when you were talking about Glee, the thing that struck me is that you seem to be fusing kind of critique and post-critique, or at least the ways that people talk about critique and post-critique, mm. right? that one is about appreciation and emotion mm. and, an, and an acceptance of literature as something that gives us pleasure. Mm. And the other is about utilizing literature for these very ambitious aims to mm. create politics, to create aesthetics, to create mm. ideology, or to interpret those things, to use literature to give us access to the most complex aspects of society. And frequently, as you just said, those two things are seen as cross purposes. Mm -hmm. But is there any reason that they have to be? Does Glee, to some extent, bring these two things that have been part of the method wars into some kind of synthesis? It seems to me that the problem with the method wars, the, the big fight with Jameson, and Jameson is already fighting with other people. He's fighting with the people who've, who've tried to put pleasure at the heart of things. He's taken pleasure back out. There have been so many efforts, haven't there, across the century to sanitise the subject in one way or another. Jameson wanted to take the personal out. He wanted to take biography out. And he wanted to historicise everything and push things in a Marxist direction. And the post-critique folk came along and they said, oh, no, this is suspicious. But there was an earlier moment when pleasure and literary analysis went together naturally. And Emerson's work is an example of of those two things working very well together. Nietzsche is an example of those two things working very well together. Roland Barthes, who Jameson was attacking, who Jameson uh, attacks in the prison house of language, was bringing them together brilliantly. So I think what tends to happen is that we get these sanitizers, these hygienists, and Jameson was maybe the first of them, and he had the same thing done to him by the post-critique folk. On the one hand, yes, I love the idea that the critical temperament is inherent to reading, to literacy of all sorts, and therefore it's something that we're all doing and that there is a, a flattening and a, a kind of equity, right? That when you enter into a space to discuss a work, a movie, a text of any sort, you are acknowledging, regardless of your training and background, that other people might have really good things to say and really interesting perspectives to bring. Mm-hmm. But also in the capitalist system, look, maybe even go so far as to say the marginalist system where scarcity is the only thing that produces value. Right? Mm-hmm. Do we risk by saying that the critical temperament is something that exists in everybody to some extent equally, yeah. that we need not make space for that to happen, to be cultivated, that we need not train it, that we need not give it resources and make space for departments of literary studies? And then if we don't do those things, do we lose all of the brands of criticism that might to some extent 
breed that more critical temperament. The books, the essays, the deep research that is the backdrop to popular criticism. Okay, yeah, I, I do think deep research can be reconciled with what I'm calling literary appreciation or, or literacy or the most basic mm-hmm. elements of the subject. So I do think that those two things can potentially go together very well. I don't think they need to be separated. I also think that, yeah, everyone has basic literacy. Yeah, fine. But why would you stop at basic literacy when literacy is perhaps the thing that we can be best at humans? Maybe that's what we're best at, getting words, really seeing into them, seeing all the way into them without ever getting to the bottom. It may be the the one skill that we both all share and we all all have superhuman capacities in. And also another answer might have to do with how originally the reason that we were all given literacy by the powers that be by our capitalist overlords was that literacy was deemed necessary to the economy i mean in order to produce a workforce worth its salt you need to universalize literacy and so yeah the reason everyone was reading like suddenly in the 19th century is that they were educated to a level that they could so literacy has this fundamental economic function that's always been accepted about it. And presumably, if you follow the logic along, basic literacy improves your workforce. Then what might a fully enhanced literacy do to your workforce? What might you achieve? I think I suppose that like, ultimately what will happen is that we'll be required to be as numerate as we are literate i think that will probably be the future but in the meantime literacy is what we're best at both what we all have to offer and the way in which we can advance best i think on the one hand i utterly agree with that framing that literacy exists in all of us but can also be amplified and the creating structures for that amplification will make for a more just and verdant society mm-hmm. But in that framing, you begin with this idea that literacy is spread for the purpose of capitalism, to make for a more productive workforce. And I I would tend to agree with that as well. But does it follow then that the sort of cost of that more productive workforce is also a more resistant one, right? One mm-hmm. that is more, you know, prone to political revolution, one that is more mm-hmm. prone to various kinds of demands upon capital that, yeah. you know, unwinds often through its documentation the structures of governance that existed prior to the printing press. And if that is the case, then isn't the the taking away of literacy, right, the de-amplification, a way to return that power? And especially at a time when a productive workforce following from sort of David Graeber's bullshit jobs argument, right? A productive workforce is no longer so much of a priority because that production might be able to be harnessed by other forms of technology. And so compliant population may now be more important than productive workforce, which means literacy becomes expendable. Yeah. The problem then is that it becomes very difficult for us to defend ourselves, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Because 
no one wants to have to say about us that we make people more stupid and less likely to resist capitalism. No one yeah. wants to make that argument. And it's always going to be true to say that the better educated you are, the more likely you are to stand up to injustice and to do so articulately. But I don't see any way around that, really. And it was Eliot's problem, too. One of the things that makes Eliot horrific at a certain point to Raymond Williams, although he liked him for a long time, one of the things that he hated about him was his argument that it would be lethal to teach ordinary people how to think and to give them the resources to think because you wouldn't want them resisting the status quo. You want everything to stay intact. And if they know how awful everything is, they won't swallow it. It's a horrible view. And if that is the view of the government, then it's our responsibility, isn't it, to ensure that they don't get away with thinking that way. Yeah, yeah and I guess this is my way of coming back to this idea that the sort of defunding of literary studies within the neoliberal university is an extension of a broader turn and the stigmatizing of things like critical race theory and culture wars attacks on education are disproportionately directed at literary studies both in english departments but also in world languages departments that literary criticism is a threat mm. and that its expulsion from the university is for the express purpose of preserving some sort of status quo power. But, I guess this is my question, Like, does that urge that you identify, that glee, that potential for amplification, does it persist outside of the spaces of professionalization that currently exist? Right? What are the alternatives? For thinking about how that might be amplified, that that those tools of basic literacy can be turned into something like more advanced mm-hmm. outside of what we have traditionally associated with that, which is a college education. I suppose they precede a college education and they outlive it already, like in unpaid form. The only difference when you go to uni and if you get a job afterwards as a lecturer. The only difference is that first you're a student of it and then you then you get paid to do it. So yeah, it has always existed outside the forms which we associate with professional accumulation of knowledge. I suppose it, it probably leaks out everywhere, doesn't it? So Ryan Ruby makes this claim that the kind of internal incoherence, the cognitive dissonance implicit to literary criticism is that in order to truly interpret a text, you have to know everything. There is no cap on what can be used for the purposes of interpretation. Mm -hmm. And yet, because of that, it means that every interpretation is always already a failure. How to dignify, (laughs) rationalize, professionalize that incoherence, I think, is one of the challenges that we face. It's both unavoidable, but it's also hard to explain why it's necessary to learn to do something that nobody can do yeah it's well i i I suppose if if other scholars in the humanities were honest they would say the same about what they were doing too right you don't get to the bottom of problems in the humanities that's not how intellectual questions in the humanities work it's our purpose to wonder 
and wonder is as big as you want it to be. It's as big as an eye popping open at the thought of something wonderful. I do think that literary criticism should give the impression of erudition. It should give the impression of knowing everything that's required like for mastery of a particular question. Here's an example. I've just finished a book about whimsy and I was writing a chapter on William Anson and William Anson's poetry in relation to his training as a mathematician. And so I discovered that I needed to learn about geometry. So I made friends with a maths prof at Exeter and by the end, I was able to talk about quasicrystals as though I knew about them. That's an instance of feeling that you need to step beyond what feel like feasible remits to your knowledge in order to understand the mind of another person who's had different training than you. Because you're understanding that part of the mind of a person which is alive in the poem that you're analysing is crucial to making the case that you want to make. So I think what happens when literary criticism is done well is that you do everything you can to make an argument persuasive while knowing at the same time that it can never be fully persuasive. That ambition to make something persuasive and to make a major knowledge claim goes hand in hand with the knowledge that failure is, yeah, is inevitable. But the sense of failure doesn't really come till afterwards. It's only 10 years later when you read your essay, which you thought was right about the wasteland. And yet you realise you were wrong. One strategy to address the inherent inadequacy of any single interpretation and the inevitable conflicts that arise between them and between critics in turn is to teach the conflict. The critic most closely associated with this strategy, who has been advocating for it for more than three decades, is Gerald Graff, an emeritus professor of English and education at University of Illinois, Chicago, and the author of, well, lots. Let's be honest. If you've gotten to the 14th episode of this podcast series, I probably don't need to tell you who Gerald Graff is. The work of Graff's long career intersects with Criticism Limited in numerous ways, as we'll be discussing next episode. Some of which, I'll sheepishly admit, I didn't even recognize until I started talking with him. But in this section, we begin by discussing the importance of assigning and reading criticism with students. One of the things that I have enjoyed about your work consistently that is maybe most explicit in what you call outing criticism, but it's a premise that I think crosses a lot of your work, is this idea that students and even the broader cultural resistance to the practice of literary and cultural criticism derives from both a lack of exposure to critical texts and a lack of recognition that criticism is just an extension of and a, a mindfulness towards habits of reception which everybody has whenever they consume any kind of cultural product. And one of the things that you draw from this is that in the classroom, we should be giving students more criticism, exposing them to more criticism, demystifying it. One of the phrases you used that I loved was empowering their anti-intellectualism in order to overcome it. And my subjective perspective in the now 18 years I've been teaching is that we're actually headed in the opposite direction. 
fewer reading assignments, shorter reading assignments, and an even greater proportion of fiction, poetry, drama, whatever is the primary object of the course, and very little criticism other than that is created within the course. Even though during that same period, there has been a growing abundance of popular criticism. One of the people I talked to, Ryan Ruby, calls it a golden age of popular criticism. And I think this speaks to the point you were just making as well, that as one vehicle for criticism, the academic monograph, the peer-reviewed essay, has an even more specialized disciplinary vocabulary and aspires to almost epistemological breakthroughs. There is another realm of criticism that has been largely based on the internet that is really accessible. And how do we acknowledge that the task of criticism is something that everybody undertakes without capitulating to the idea that literary studies and its practitioners are expendable because everybody can read a book and have something to say about it. Everybody can watch a movie and have something to say about it. On the one hand, this profession, I think, serves a very practical role, as you yourself has argued. But when we acknowledge that everybody is doing criticism in some rudimentary form, we play into the idea that what we do is just consume literature. Yeah, we might, though I think we could make the claim that, that we're needed to provide models of how to do criticism at its best. And I didn't know that anyone had called our age an age of popular criticism, but I think that's right. I think the the quality of literary journalism or media journalism that you see every day and has greatly improved is terrific. But I think that's partly because a lot of uh, academics are writing it, or a lot of people who are writing it are academics who couldn't get teaching jobs and became media journalists or or reviewers. I'm uh, sorry to hear you say I, I retired in 2016 and I wasn't aware that there had been a move back toward just teaching primary texts and not assigning a criticism, which strikes me as a depressing trend, if that's true. I would think, though, and I think you just suggested this, that the all-pervasiveness of the web would create a pressure toward making criticism kind of universal because it's all around us. If you go online, you might get the primary text, but you're going to get this tremendous volume of commentary on everything, and you're going to be swept into possibly into contributing to this commentary. So, yeah, there's some interesting conflicting forces going on here. I'm glad you singled out my defense of outing criticism, getting it out of the closet, getting out there. I said, look, and Guillory is good on this, too. We don't teach literature. We don't teach students how to write epic poems. We teach them to write about literature. We teach criticism. And the discourse in the classroom is critical discourse. We don't speak in epic poems or lyric poems. But it's very hard to get that point across. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the stubborn belief that criticism somehow competes with literature, which kind of brings up some of your Mark Twain themes, the critics and the creative writers being presumably enemies of each other. It seems hard for people to not see criticism as somehow a threat to the integrity of literature and to the enjoyment of literature. Of course, when one thinks of the student comment, I loved reading literature. I loved reading until I went to the university and then they taught me to hate it because I had to always look for the hidden meaning or I had to turn it into 
crossword puzzles, nitpicking searches for symbols and so forth. That implicit antagonism between author and critic, which absolutely was something that Twain harped on throughout his career with a degree of acknowledgement that he needed critics too, that he recognized that they served some kind of role, especially when we're talking about reviewers and the literary historians, like that they were going to play some kind of role in sustaining his cultural capital, to borrow Gunn Guillory's phrase. Twain recognized that relatively early in his life, but nonetheless also had this antagonism with critics and a presumption about the critical temperament that there was something sorted about it. More recently, that antagonism between creative writers and critics has actually entered the institution. That creative writing in many departments is the draw. That criticism, literary history, rhetoric and composition, all the other programs that may be seated within a literary studies or an English department have recently tended to be secondary to creative writing. And I wonder how you think about that collision that has happened, where the implicit antagonism between creative writers and critics has now actually been institutionalized. It used to exist in the press. It used to exist in the sort of public sphere. Now it's actually exists in the department meeting, in the budget. One thing I would say about this, uh, Matt, is that these are fascinating issues. It strikes me as ironic and a bit disappointing that we raise an issue like this in this kind of podcast, but it seems to me this kind of question that you just raised should be raised directly in our teaching every day in departments of English and creative writing, and yet they're not. I published an essay in College English some years ago called What We Say When We Don't Talk About Creative Writing. You have the creative writing program, you have the regular English program, and it's just assumed that students will make their pick increasingly, as you say. I think they're majoring in creative writing. It's a sexy subject. And it's implicitly not overloaded with the baggage of criticism, as you say. But the conflict or tension between creative writing and literary study is not really an object of study every day in the classroom. What is interesting, though, is that I think increasingly, and I don't know at what point this seemed to happen, but increasingly I think creative writing programs themselves are sites of conflict between these paradigms. One of my good friends who passed away, unfortunately, some years ago, Charles Newman, who was a novelist and a critic and who edited the Triquarterly, he founded the Triquarterly at Northwestern, he believed very strongly that creative writing should not be a state of anti-intellectualism. The creative writing program should be fully critical as well as creative, and that it was a good thing for poets and novelists to read criticism, do dissertations that involve criticism as well as creative work, and so forth. But it struck me that there was a conflict within creative writing over that issue, that in some programs, criticism was anathema and treated as an enemy. And you wanted to be free from that and differentiate yourself very sharply from the literature program, which was involved with criticism. I thought Newman was maybe ahead of the curve there and was setting a model where creative programs would be themselves self-consciously critical. Some ways it was tied up with John Barth, who was a good friend of his, and I think believed similarly that there should be no quarrel between the critic and the creative writer. 
And that kind of metafictional move in fiction, I think, often you couldn't tell the difference between the, the work that was literature or criticism. Creative writing programs themselves were reflecting this tension in interesting ways, but the issues should be got out much more explicitly on the agenda of literary study itself, instead of just something that people like you and I might write about as our special topic. I love this idea that a previous period, what we might refer to as the metafictionists, that one of the things that is being unraveled by the prioritization of autofiction and that turn that happens in creative writing programs is that there was a, a unification of criticism and creative writing happening through writers who were so conscious of and, re and eager to represent the process of creation and thus a, a process of interpretation that was within the text itself. And I'm very interested to know whether that sort of whether you recognize that turn happening at some point where the union between critic and creative writer that was already nascent and already minimal falls away that beginning of some sort of union or allegiance between critic and creative writer dematerializes. You pick up on something about students' responses to Huckleberry Finn that I think is relevant to this discussion as well, that there is in the very opening lines of that novel, a warning against criticism, right? Persons attempting to find morals, motives, plot, will be prosecuted, banished, and shot, right? That Twain opens with this violent threat <laughs> against criticism, which, as you know, confirms some readers' biases towards thinking that critical analysis is a form of overthinking, something that pompous know-it-all eggheads do. And, right. and yet Huckleberry Finn has inspired an enormous body of criticism, <laughs> including from yourself. And as I've talked about throughout this series, the Twain's relationship to critics was one of skepticism, even sometimes disgust, but also recognition of a kind of vitality and necessity. I guess the reason I wanted to bring this up was I'm curious whether there are some texts, some literary texts, that serve the kind of desire for teaching a critical controversy better than others. And if there is a relationship between that and the author's patience with or embrace of criticism themselves. After promoting the idea of teaching critical conflict for a long time, at some point I realized that when I read a literary work, I was particularly alerted to the element of debate within literary works, within the controversies. And of course, when you start looking for something in literature, you find it everywhere. Be careful about that. If you take Shakespeare's Tempest, which is a text that I ended up teaching a lot, and a lot of Shakespeare's plays are, are like this. They're just one set of debates after another. It's just characters arguing with each other endlessly, which is, of course, the big way to create dramatic conflict. Tempest opens with the shipwrecked people, and they're immediately in this big raging argument. It's while they're being shipwrecked. The aristocrats on the ship are arguing with the sailors, saying, come on, you got to save us. What's wrong with you? you know, I can't remember the details, but there's this big argument, and it gets into hierarchy threats. Aristocrats start saying, be careful who you're talking to here. 
you can be seriously punished for what you're saying. And anyway, these arguments persist throughout the play. Philip Roth's novels, I recently had a kick where I read a lot of the Philip Roth novels I hadn't read. They're just one set of debates after another between characters over everything, sex, love, work, politics, everything. And I became more and more convinced of something that I've always felt is that the whole opposition between literature and everything else was enormously overblown. In the Romantic period, that kind of got established that there's literature over here and the creative imagination. And then there's reason or fact or the world of everyday life and so forth over there, and that they are totally separate, or they're supposed to be separate. And I think that kind of romantic paradigm is still with us. The students who say, oh, I love literature until I started taking this course on it, and then I learned to hate it. I had to look for the hidden meaning. Or you have Twain at the center of this, too. Literature is itself a form of criticism. And I think, yeah, in some writers, you can see this more clearly than others, maybe Roth is one, but somebody like Borges, for example, and I became a big Borges fan, and there was a kind of cult of Borges at Tri-Quarterly in the 70s when I came close to Newman. Is Borges literature or is it criticism? It's hard to really make a separation, and why do that at all? So I think it would be very healthy the more we could dissolve this boundary. Bringing up Borges, I'm teaching a course on magic realism right now, a course I teach every couple of years. And one of the ways I try to define it, because of course it's a somewhat hard thing to define, right? It's global, it, it has a trajectory that comes out of the Latin boom, but it, it takes on all sorts of other national traditions, ethnic traditions, genre traditions. But one of the things that I use to try to bring them together is this idea that one of the distinguishing features of magic realism is neither the magic nor the realism, but the fact that it engages its process of creation in in some sort of critical fashion. It forces us to be aware of its making and to analyze the production process. It forces us to disregard the romantic temperament that you describe, where we experience art and creation and then we go live the rest of our lives, right? But that these things come together in magic realism. Yeah, I just think something that seems to be happening in really global literature in the 20th century is this sort of celebration of a union between criticism and creativity that I think carries over into a lot of the popular criticism of our own time, but maybe doesn't into the creative writing of our own time, right? That there has been a kind of split again, at least as I perceive it as we're talking. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of the resistance to criticism is a kind of resistance to and weariness with conflict. Because in criticism, of course, you've got debate right up front. Somebody praises this book, somebody attacks it, or somebody interprets it one way, and then somebody comes up with counterinterpretation. And of course, academic criticism wears people out because you've got this endless argument about what the work means and so forth, and then people come to feel that's threatening the immediacy and, and enjoyment of the work itself. It's distracting us. Which is how students mm -hmm. feel about a lot of metafiction, too. Yeah, you can understand the fatigue in the face of the multiplicity of conflict in the modern world and how irritating it all is. It seems to me there's a kind of juvenile uh, quality about, you know, this resistance, you know, come on, 
conflict is out there. You want to deal with it. But people think of literature as a kind of way of retreating from conflict into the self-present immediacy, organic unity, harmony of the work itself, which is, of course, nonsense because the works are themselves sites of conflict. We're talking about the same things, but in a different set of terms, the same oppositions. And one of the big oppositions is conflict versus harmony or unity and so forth. I'm not against unity and harmony. I'll take a slice, but if it's not around, you have to deal with conflict. So you've got to figure out some way to do it. We're going to conclude this episode by talking to a scholar who has firsthand experience with the institutionalization of the implicit rivalry between critics and creative writers. Harry Stakopoulos is professor of English at University of Iowa and author most recently of Telling America's Story to the World. He's also co-organizer of Iowa's Fate of Professional Reading series, an ongoing program of lectures and debates which has recently featured some of the scholars you've met in Criticism Limited. I wanted to talk to Harry about the importance of in-person, on-campus events for academic criticism. But I think the place that I wanted to start is the, the title that you gave to this speaker series, yeah. The Fate of Professional Reading, yes. which I think, on the one hand, very much is in line with some of the, the things we've been talking about throughout the series, this idea of, of crisis, of some mm-hmm. sort of turning point epoch that we are facing. But your choice to include the term reading I thought was a particularly interesting one, given that many of the other texts that I would include in this corpus focus on writing, on criticism, on teaching. But one of the things that I would say about my own career in recent years, maybe particularly since the pandemic, and there's lots of other factors that might go into this, but the thing that's suffering is my time reading. I feel a little silly complaining about that because I probably still read more than 90% of people, even people who would like to read more. But I know that my time spent reading both professionally and for leisure has decreased dramatically in recent years. And so I wondered why the term reading, how that was uh, arrived at and how that sort of structures your thinking about this topic. Those are great questions. I should give credit where credit is due. Uh, Garrett Stewart, my colleague and co-founder and creator of the series, came up with the title. But the emphasis on reading stems to some degree from a national situation and to a greater degree, I'd say, from a local or Iowa, University of Iowa uh, situation. Iowa brands itself the writing university, as you may or may not know. Yep. Although I think Amherst College is now the writing college. I could be wrong. Anyway, and since we are ground zero for the creative writing revolution, beginning in the late 30s and continuing to this day, writing, particularly creative writing, is omnipresent on our campus. We have 915 majors. Mm-hmm. If we're not the biggest in-person major in the country, we're certainly one of the top three. Two-thirds of them are creative writing majors, and the overall thrust of the university and the department when it comes to literary concerns is writing and creative writing, which is great. I don't want to belittle that or diminish it. We have wonderful students coming in from all over the country and the world because of the creative writing emphasis. It enriches our department, our town. At the same time, those of us who are trained critics, Garrett, myself, and many of the others, 
worry a bit that there isn't a comparable emphasis on reading and reading critically. Many of a creative writing faculty feel the same, I should say. They do not think you become even a decent writer, let alone a good writer or a great writer, without reading deeply and exhaustively. So we were just mulling things over early last summer and thought it might be good to do a series where the emphasis is on reading. Originally, it was going to be an emphasis on formalist reading, and then we thought that would be too dinosaur-like and everyone's, you know, want to put us out to pasture. We broadened a bit, and Ryan Ruby's presence in the series reflects that expansion of the vision. But at the end of the day, we really wanted to emphasize reading and reading deeply, passionately, and critically in a way designed to foster debate, even polemic. And we've had two talks so far, and that's what's been happening. But their emphasis on reading is by design, and we do mean reading in the cognitive act of reading a book, but also as in close reading or interpretive acts. So both meanings are in play here. Yeah. You referenced Ryan and he has contributed to this series as well. And he very clearly straddles that line between creative writing and criticism, an appropriate figure for this conversation and for the yeah. series. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about how the creative writing students, graduate students, and faculty members respond to the perceived crisis and criticism, which I assume both Ryan and Anna make some reference to in their presentations. You reference that there are some creative writing faculty that really are enthusiastic about an emphasis on reading and voluminous reading, but is there any sense of alienation about criticism as a focus, as a profession, as a discipline? Alienation on the part of the creative writers or yeah. on the... No, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> I think the alienation is all on the other side. Uh -huh. um, and as the creative writing, the golden age of creative writing, I'll steal from Ryan here, is upon us mm -hmm. at the undergrad level in particular. The boom in places like Chicago that historically never deigned to express any interest unless it was Saul Bellow right. occupying like a grand sage role. <laughs> They're hiring writers mm -hmm. by the pound, it seems to me. So no, there's no, I don't think there's alienation on the creative writer side, and with good reason. People are coming here and elsewhere to do creative writing. Very few 18-year-olds go, I want to become a Miltonist, mm -hmm. 23, or I don't know, Conradian, or a Morrisonian for that matter. I mean, a few. And here, as in so many other institutions, the administration is aware of the fact that undergrads are interested in that. And they're also conscious of the demographic cliff. So they want to go where the interest is. And I can't blame them. Of course, that makes sense. And again, I want to stress that it's added enormously to our department creatively and intellectually. But, and I guess my butt's the other shoe falling, I still want to push critical reading as a place where a different kind of intellectual and creative work can take place. And Ryan is really good on emphasizing mm -hmm. the creativity in criticism. That's why we're doing the series. So Anna's talk, which was part of the new book, Immediacy, coming in January, I think. Yeah, January. Uh, really captured, or well, maybe stage is a better word, what Garrett and I were after. She delivered a portion of the book with a great PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. It was a packed house. Mm-hmm. Tough questions, equally tough responses. And if anyone out there knows Anna, you won't be surprised. Right. Um, very, just a high level of excitement and energy in the room. And I can't speak to the undergrads who were there. There weren't that many. But both the grad students and the faculty were talking about Anna's presentation and the aftermath well into the following week. Mm. And we really haven't, I'm not 
just patting myself on the back here, but we haven't had that sort of intellectual excitement and dynamism in a long time, partially because of COVID as well. I can't charge right. to aesthetic or institutional yeah. changes. But it was just a wonderful wake-up call. So two of my colleagues who did not agree with Anna <laughs> were annoyed with me, not because I convinced them to go to the talk, but because they couldn't stop talking about it and arguing about it, they're married, for the entire weekend after the talk. And to me, that was complete success. Yeah. So I, and I guess I miss that sort of civil, polite, but excited and engaged intellectual debate, conversation, whatever you want to call it. Creative writing has wonderful qualities and readings are fantastic events, but there are rarely debates. In fact, I would say it's almost verboten or a faux pas to try to spark a debate in a Q&A after a reading. And I guess I still value that and I missed that during COVID and I want to ensure that at least a bit of it re remains. Yeah. I'd love to follow up on that. Anna's work is definitely familiar to many listeners of this series. She's you know, been the most common guest on the podcast over the years, including part of this series, although the, her work on immediacy, we featured on a previous series, but not necessarily more recently. But I'm curious if you'd be willing to summarize what are the major debates that it sparked? Because I think that is a really interesting question, because at least for me, in the sort of critical circles that I am orbiting, she is not a particularly controversial figure, right? She seems to be emerging as one of the voices that is capturing a lot of what people are feeling. And so I'm very interested to, to hear that there was some tension in the room. And I know very well that Anna can handle it, but I'm curious to see what those debates were like. Yeah. So we have a MFA, a graduate program in nonfiction within the English department at Iowa. The writer's workshop is separate. And part of Anna's presentation, this is drawn from the literature portion of the book, Book, right. was on the enormous success and omnipresence of memoir mm -hmm. and auto theory and personal writing in our contemporary literary culture. And I don't think she deplores all of it, but she takes very careful and devastating aim, in my opinion, at some of those genres or forms and some of those aesthetics. So there was pushback from a number of people, some of whom don't even practice nonfiction themselves, but they're partial to it. One colleague asked about a free and direct discourse, and they got into a little bit of a tussle over free and direct discourse and its relationship to auto theory. Another colleague pointed out that, oh, Anna brought up big data stuff on the shift from third to first person mm -hmm. in fiction uh, in the Anglophone world over the last 200 years. Yeah. And one of my Victorian's colleagues pointed out that shift or claim that occurred earlier in the 18th century and started citing things. Mm-hmm. And that Anna discussed trauma in autobiographical fiction mm -hmm. and in memoir, and no less than Carmen Maria Machado, herself a formidable presence, was in the audience because mm -hmm. I think they're visiting at the workshop this semester. Mm -hmm. So they asked a tough question. So Anna stress on the necessity for mediation of an aesthetic or intellectual variety. Mm -hmm. It didn't so much run into, let's say, Iowa creative writing full tilt, but mm -hmm. it was an interesting tension with some of the prevailing aesthetics and intellectual mindsets at Iowa yeah. in a productive way, I think, in a way that other places they would have accepted more easily mm -hmm. for thesis. But here, there are a lot of people who practice a variety of first-person fiction yeah. or memoir, and mm -hmm. so there was pushback, which resulted in a great and dynamic event. Yeah. I often teach Garth Greenwell's work. And That's great. 
Yeah, uh, wonderful novels, and I definitely yeah. appreciate his style and deployment of autofiction. But it, he he, dis, he rejects the. Uh, I know. Uh, yeah. 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 I, I feel like his rejection is somewhat tepid, but I absolutely imagine yeah. that the Iowa Writers Workshop ha- has a certain kind of investment in yeah. this genre of autofiction that would make for some tension around anesthesis and yeah. the, and the, the idea of a complicity between autofiction and forms of exploitation. Yeah, a lot of people pushing back on the idea that uh, a certain mode of production and her claim that uh, her homological sort of claim that a certain mode of production gave rise to or um, precipitated a certain kind of literary style and aesthetic. People are poking at her methodology, but that's... For me, that's all for the good. I don't want a happy room. Yeah, like Anna, I came out of the graduate program at University of California, Irvine. And certainly at the time I was there, maybe not always for the best, the culture of the place was if there was a guest speaker, if there was a public lecture, it was going to get contentious. I love that. Yeah. I don't know if people come come close to striking each other, but I have wonderful memories. The Dartmouth Futures of American Studies Mm -hmm. Seminar of Don Pease and Robin Wiegman going at it over paranoid versus reparative criticism. Mm-hmm. In front of like 120, 140 people, as long as it's kept relatively civil, yeah. I think that generates a kind of energy that you don't find in creative writing. And frankly, although I also support it, you really don't find in public humanities just because mm-hmm. it's too broad an audience or purview. You really need people who have a stake or skin in the game, let me say, put it that mm-hmm. way. So that's what lies behind our series, just trying to recover a bit of that excitement, call it 90s nostalgia, maybe retro impulse, but to give grad students and younger faculty and even ourselves a reminder of what, let's say, the polemical humanities can do. From the perspective of a graduate student, always silent in those environments, at least that was my inclination, but always coming away thinking about Do I have a position on these things that the speaker and a variety of faculty seem to really care about, right? Do they matter to me? And if so, why? And I think that is a very profound and meaningful thing to associate with this kind of events. And this sort of leads into one of the questions I wanted to ask that has this sort of bigger picture. It is my impression that in the kind of austere conditions that many places, although it sounds like not as much Iowa are facing, one of the first things to go are events like lecture series, guest speakers, invited lecturers. Like these are the the first places that departments often look to pare down the budget. And I was hoping you would talk about, first of all, like why these things are worth preserving, right? What do lecture series and invited speakers do for the culture of a department, for a university environment? And then also, do you have strategies for trying to protect and sustain them? A lot of places are feeling the pinch and they probably feel, I certainly feel, and I'm very fortunate that the Center for Mark Twain Studies, that's a big part of what we do. So there's always going to be some vibrancy to the campus events here. But as a whole, the college has pared back. And so I expect that's a pretty common situation. And I I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about why it's important to sustain and then what can you do to sustain it? 
that's maybe that is the biggest question right now. Again, Iowa is somewhat anomalous, although not completely given that we're talking about literary infrastructure. When it comes to creative writing and creative writing sort of adjacent projects, we are pretty well funded. We have a venerable literary magazine, the Iowa Review, which I used to edit, which is going strong. We have international writing programs funded by the State Department, which brings 40 writers in from around the world every fall for about two months. We have four MFAs, I think. Am I missing one? And all that enormous English major of over 900 majors. But when it comes to more scholarly ventures, yes, funding is a little harder to come by. Not impossible. This series has been funded by the Friedman Chair, which is Garrett's Endowed Chair. Uh, He was very generous. And then the Constance Irwin Fund from the English Department, one of our foundation funds. And I don't know if we could sustain that every year because we're bringing in six speakers from outside the campus and we're trying to pay them a reasonable honorarium and everything. So it's pricey. But that is a major issue. I think we haven't gone to the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences or to the university or the provost cup in hand yet. We could, and we'll probably get something there. But no, I think it's incredibly important. And I guess at the risk of repeating myself, it's important to share with younger faculty, grad students, undergrads, and staff for that matter, that literary criticism, and I'll even broaden it, cultural criticism as well, can be as lively and exciting and as important as creative writing or as the arts and as STEM. I worry sometimes that STEAM, the, the other acronym, right. is not just in Iowa, throughout the nation, is pushing the humanities aside. There'll always be a place for the chamber quartet, the museum, and there are all those alliances between physics and like music theory, things like that. And sometimes I get the sense that the humanities are sort of being shunted to the side a bit. There's no H in STEAM. That's the <laughs> idiot way of putting it. And it's just my nature. I want to push back a bit on that. I think there's much to offer. And the arts, creative writing most obviously, but other art forms as well, and the sciences benefit from, benefit from the humanities. The intellectual give and take, to me, that's really the heart of it. That, and to lose that into a general appreciation of the great poet who visits or for the scientist who invents the theorem, again, maintaining that dynamic conversation is one of the humanities' greatest contributions to university life. Yeah. And I just get really worried that if you let that go, the university will be a much more tedious place. Mm. So we hope to sustain the series next year. We're moving in an eco-critical direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Garrett's idea, actually. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a book on climate right now. So climate change, extraction, things like that, and seeing how they speak to and inform current literary critical debates and debates over literary criticism. In fact, Anna speaks to that as well in her mm-hmm. book. Yeah. But I really think it's imp- crucial to keep that alive. It's not just a matter of Teaching Milton, then having the scholar go home to his or her their house, generate a new reading of Comus, publish it, teach again. It's the extra stuff. The conversations in the hall, in the seminar room, in the lecture hall, online, offline. And some of those will take place in para-academic spaces. This mm-hmm. Ryan's great on that. But some won't. Yeah. And I feel like LARB and other para-academic venues and lecture series will cease to exist unless the wellspring of a- actual academic work Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're para, para for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's definitely one of the things that, that we've talked about in the course of the series is yeah. that various forms of para academic and public criticism are great and I think necessary. 
but also depend upon this sort of foundation where if you you don't have highly specialized academic monographs being yes. produced from within the somewhat sheltered setting of the university, then the para-academic and public criticism has the potential to be impoverished. And I think that is a piece that's sometimes missing. And I am quick to celebrate public criticism, public-facing yeah. criticism, yeah. and para-academic. Yeah. It, it definitely is incredibly important in this moment. But it, it has to be seen as a both and, yes. right, as opposed to an alternative or a substitution. And I do think there is a, a temptation, particularly at the administrative level, to start looking to, oh, we want this person promoting the brand, getting yeah. out there, getting more readerships, more clicks, more traffic, yeah. right? Yes, and that's really is what speaks to the neoliberal university. And that doesn't necessarily help generate the knowledge forms that are important for perpetuating the field and perpetuating the discipline. I do want to go back to something that you said uh, a little earlier, the kind of collegiality that is fostered by campus events. And that this is a space, as much as I'd like to think that things like podcasts and other forms of collaborative production are filling some of the intellectual necessity of conversation and of collegiality. That is a thing that I think is often underrated and was definitely endangered by the pandemic, right? Like getting back the campus culture, getting back the departmental culture, getting back some form of daily collegiality has been tougher than I think I expected that it would be. How do you sustain within this clearly very vibrant department with tons of of majors, of graduate students, faculty in a variety of different programs and backgrounds, like how do you build that culture? Because it also, I know, as people are competing for resources and have different investments, it can get thorny as well. It can. Yeah. There are divisions, as there are in any department, any university, uh, and scheduling remains uh, a challenge. I've been at a number of schools. No school manages to have one master calendar that avoids conflicts. It boggles the mind, but just the nature of uh, academic life. Yeah. So, yeah, there are some issues. I don't think the scholars go to the writers' readings enough. And I went to Virginia for my grad school experience, and shamefully, I'll confess here, I didn't attend a single literary reading in Virginia, despite the fact that we people like Rita Dove and Charles Wright and John Casey, not once, which is shameful and embarrassing and humiliating, in fact. And there's some of that persists, I'd say, at every campus. And they, by the same token, don't tend to go to scholarly lectures as much as they should. So there should be more of that. What we're trying to do in a very incipient fashion at Iowa is move toward a creative critical hybrid vision of the major and potentially of the PhD, although we're at like not even the baby stages, we're at the seedling stages. And in an effort to draw on the considerable creative writing strengths of the university, but ensure at the same time that criticism and scholarship remains an equal partner in the arrangement. So I ran this sort of working group at the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies, which is our like advanced studies thing here on creative critical pedagogies. Mm -hmm. 
particularly around the dissertation, how can you reconceive the humanities dissertation in other modes, in other genres? And then we've done some of that in the department as well. Ryan was really a, a good guest for that, given mm-hmm. that he straddles the line, being both a, a novelist, well, a novelist, a translator, a critic, mm-hmm. and a poet, I think, if I'm mm-hmm. getting them all. So we're really interested in trying to shape or generate a new approach to literary criticism and English in particular mm-hmm. that draws on both sides. And hopefully that will both draw upon existing collegiality and breed more of the same. And that's the plan. But of course, you're right. There are tensions over resources, enrollment, mm-hmm. attention. Scholars don't sell books. Some writers do. Not all writers, but some writers get more attention. Scholars rarely get attention and so forth and so on. But f- as far as I'm concerned, retaining and even expanding that sort of dynamic collegiality is to me the great payoff of being in an English department. I had the good fortune to go to Oberlin, a college undergrad, and the just wildly passionate conversations in English classes, as though a point about pale fire was the most important thing in the world. You know, privilege, of course, and take Jeffrey Early Mera's point about some institutions have more resources than others. And I'm one of the privileged people here. There's no doubt about it. And at Virginia, too, I had just a wonderful fly-on-the-wall moments in class, out of class. And I guess I'd feel irresponsible if I let that spirit die on my watch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think all the professors trained in public humanities were shifting over to creative writing. Great, wonderful. But I guess do a little work just keeping the flame alive, yeah. I guess that's what I'd say. That transitions very neatly into a question that has animated this whole series that I've asked over and over again, which I think maybe has a different layer to it at Iowa, since the sort of precarity of the discipline doesn't seem to be affecting you as directly or as immediately. But the question of, of, is there some sort of internal crisis to criticism, right? Is there something about the methods, the objects of study, the curriculum and pedagogy, is there something that has caused a decline in enrollments, a decline in the sort of effectiveness or cultural capital of criticism other than the defunding of the discipline across higher education? And so I'm very curious from your perspective to think about, is there something happening within criticism, right, within literary studies that isn't just about funding, isn't just about yeah. resources? Chris Newfield, whom I know, uh, his point that humanities crisis, the funding crisis, remains the bottom line, I think, here and elsewhere. It, it's follow the money. That's about the economy, stupid, and so forth and yeah. so on. I do think that is the bottom line. And that applies here as well. We rarely get lines in scholarship. Mm-hmm. We get some creative writing lines, although not a ton of those either. And we almost never get lines, like we never get a Torinus line or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that remains a pressing concern. In terms of methodology or approach, I think criticism is actually rather lively. One of the people in your podcast was talking about how there's, it wasn't Ryan, it was someone else. There's just so many people doing great work. There are fewer of them than there were maybe 20 years ago for obvious reasons. But there's still a lot of people doing wonderful work from a variety of critical perspectives for a variety of reasons to a number of different audiences. And so I don't see some problem there that it's too rarefied or elitist. Most people don't write in sort of Baroque jargon any longer. I mean, there are a few holdouts. Right. Most don't. I think most criticism is actually 
fairly lucid and accessible to, let's say, your average New Yorker reader, Mm -hmm. if, if they are so inclined. So I don't see a problem there. And frankly, I think, I mean, we are blessed here with a number of very literary minded undergrads. But I think a lot of young people still want to read, actually, and maybe not all, but like Catherine Hales came here 15 years ago and claimed that at Duke, the undergrads won't read big novels. They just won't read them. She has to give them what well, wasn't TikToks then, it was whatever, the, right. whatever the short video format was then. And then the one from Harvard was in the Nathan Heller piece, talking about how her Harvard undergrads find Scarlet Letter too hard. Mm. I told that to my undergrads and boy, did they almost fall out of their chairs laughing. Not that they're all great or brilliant, but most of them will read the Scarlet Letter. Mm-hmm. Maybe not perfectly. Right. And most of them will have at least a reasonably interesting thing to say about a line or two in the Scarlet Letter. I don't accept that our profession is too navel-gazing or rarefied or out of touch with Trump America. What I do fault us for is not so much making us useful in why aren't we helping the community raise money or articulate a particular political agenda. I believe in those things. I don't think we've demonstrated that it can be exciting and fun to argue about a novel the way it is to argue about a football team. (laughs) Yeah. And it can be. Absolutely, yeah. Or film, or for that matter, musical composition. Or actually, people do argue about pop songs every day, mm-hmm. everywhere. But we haven't been able to convey that reading a novel, or a graphic novel, or for that, even a poem, God help us, can be exciting and dynamic. It's not like it's going to be what, the Twitch, where people watch other people fade video right. games. That's never going to happen. <laughs> like, watch the critic interpret, you know, Lucidus or something. But in certain ways, I think we could do a better job of conveying the excitement that exists mm-hmm. when people debate against civilly and reasonably the relative merits or uh, problems of a particular work of literature. And I don't know exactly you know, how to do that. That's a challenge. But adult education comes to mind of the British kind of cultural studies variety where mm-hmm. people like Raymond Williams and Hall and others teaching the coal miners Victorian lit or something and, and arguing with them about it. I don't know if no, that's possible. Prison education efforts are maybe an example of that today. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to see more of that, a certain maybe more targeted and excitement-oriented public humanities that mm-hmm. can to share the debate. Yeah. A contentious enthusiasm, right? That yeah, seems to be a kind of theme yeah. in yeah. what you're saying about what you're trying to produce with the professional reading yeah. series, That's but right. also just why critical literary studies needs to remain a part of a you know, humanities environment, even if something like creative writing or media studies or film studies, even yeah. if these things are becoming more central to how people understand the humanities, criticism, it brings that kind of energy, that excitement that comes with a little bit of contentiousness. Arguments, again, I don't want anyone to come to blows or start cussing each other out. Arguments are good. Arguments provoke conversation. I posted Judith Butler's, oh, I think you liked it. Uh, Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. LRB piece. Oh, that was uh, a perfect example, right? You had really interesting things being oh my said God. in People, the comments. Long post. That's what English and the humanities were broadly designed to do. Bring people together, spark lively and sometimes contentious conversation. And if we can possibly find a way to share that with the public at large, I think that to me is the best justification for the humanities. Not Arnoldian de- defenses or utilitarian defenses, or even lefty political defenses. I think 
share the vibe, share the excitement. That's what I'm after at least. For more about this episode, including a complete bibliography, visit marktwainstudies.com backslash empire of criticism. Or subscribe to my Substack at theamericanvandal.substack.com. On Monday and Tuesday, I'll be releasing the final two installments of the Empire of Criticism trilogy, the finale of Criticism Limited, the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies. Until then, share the vibes. <laughs>